Welcome to the Ask the Expert podcast series at the Royal Geographical Society with Institute of British Geographers. I'm Laura and I write resources for the education department here. This recording is part of our growing series of interviews, questions and answers from leading geographical experts and practitioners. Today I'm joined by Dr Suzanne Hall from the London School of Economics. Dr Hall is an urban ethnographer and her research is concerned with diverse cities and public space and how migration and migrant practices have shaped high streets in the UK looking at places such as Inner London, Leicester, Manchester and Birmingham. So your research focuses on the global processes of urbanisation and migration and how they play out in ordinary spaces. Can you tell me, how did your academic background lead you to these research interests? Well, I, I grew up in South Africa in the heart of the apartheid era and so questions of race um, and migrant labour at, at that point were always quite central to everyday life. Um, I then trained and practiced as an architect in South Africa and it became so apparent uh, in that process of making buildings but also watching how people were making space that the relationship between the, the, the spatial and the societal is absolutely integral and for me it then became an absolute source of fascination to begin to think about the layers of authority, of resistance, of race, of ethnicity that both are imposed in space but also resisted in space. Um, when I came to the UK I was really interested in the city's program at the LSE because it is explicitly set up to explore this relationship between the physical and the social, the spatial and the political. And so I, I did a PhD here, and at that point I happened to be living above the Walworth Road, which is an incredibly intense retail street um, just off the Elephant and Castle, about a 20-minute bus ride from the centre of the city. And it really um, struck me that this was a, a poor area. It was a, an area that had no inkling of gentrification, which is not, not the case now. But it was also an area in which people from all parts of the planet had set up shop um, to make business. And that, to me, became a, a real source of interest. So the Ordinary Streets project took place in Peckham, southeast London. Why did you choose this area? Mm, I chose Peckham. In fact, students of mine chose Peckham on my behalf. They undertook a, a very small research project, presented it back to me in a lecture, and I was absolutely compelled by the story that they were revealing. Peckham Rye Lane is, is not that far from the Walworth Road, which was my first study, but it has a vitality and an intensity which is, to my mind, unparalleled with any other street I've looked at across the UK. And so I went with these students to have a, a walk down Rye Lane at about 11 o'clock one morning and the street was absolutely full of people. So it wasn't simply that there was intensity inside the shops, but the pavements themselves were just encrusted with, with life. And I thought, well, this has got to be the next study. So in what sense was that intensity then? Can you describe what the street was like when you walked down? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's literally full of people moving and waiting for a bus and coming out of the station. 
and the shops themselves um, spill their wares onto the street every day. So you get these incredibly uh, well-orchestrated pavement spaces that are full of yams and garlic and fish and uh, mobile phone hardware and software. Um, and the thing that was interesting to me at that point was that there was a wide variety of age groups on the street. So there were clearly a lot of elderly people, but there were also a lot of young people. And as we walked the street and spent our day on that street, um, around about the three, four o'clock mark when um, students come out of school, the street was reinvigorated. And in spending more and more time on the street, that kind of intensity really exists in Rye Lane from about 10 in the morning to about 7, 8 o'clock at night. So it sounds like a very sensory place. In what senses then did you, what kind of methods did you use to investigate this street as a space as part of the project? Mm. Um, we began very much with an ethnographic approach. We knew that we would need to spend a lot of time on the street in order to try and unpack its layers. Um, I was working with a group of students on this project, um, and so we, we needed to begin with a common format for all of us to enter into the research together. So we designed a very short survey. It was no more than an A4 page. and. It was the kind of face-to-face -face survey where you could go into a shop and you knew that you might have five minutes to, to interrupt the entrepreneurial rhythm. So the questions had to be quite pointed. And in about one in every four surveys that we did, fortunately that very short interview extended into much longer conversations. So that was our common starting point of walking the street, going into every single shop and doing the survey. Once we had done that over about a two-week period, um, we then had time to draw breath and to think about who we wanted to go back and speak to. And we did that process of, of speaking and listening and almost the snowball effect that ethnographers speak about over the period of a year. And in that period, it became very evident to us that there was a planning process um, going on in Peckham that a lot of the traders felt very distanced from and very agitated by. And in looking at the initial plans um, that Southwark Council had developed for the street, it was very much a kind of format of what you would expect a planner to designate a town centre as. Um, and it had no real cognizance of the economic life and the kind of social texture of the street. And so the method then evolved because of the nature of the issue. And so in the second year, we spent much more time moving away from the traders and working with community-based organizations, activist platforms, but also um, spending a lot of time with, with different people who worked at the council to understand what their imperatives were and why it was that they weren't able to recognize the economic vitality of the street. So what is quite typical of ethnographies is that they evolve and you have to be very open to that process of evolution where you think your project is explicitly about one thing. We thought it was largely about trying to comprehend economic vitality in its micro dimensions. But in the second year, it invariably came, became much more about a political endeavor. 
And so that then set up a really fantastic research conversation between how do the political and the economic intersect if, if micro-entrepreneurs on the street are economically agile, and in Rylane they certainly are, in what ways are they politically agile? And the question that we really asked there was what do people do when things go wrong? Um, and then the third year of the ethnography was, was much more about um, engaging with particular individuals but allowing our reflections to wind into broader conversations with other academics, beginning to explore processes of writing. And at that point I worked with a very talented filmmaker who also had an architectural background, um, a person called Sophie Yetten, who um, began to film parts of the street and I worked closely with Sophie over a period of a year to make a film which was released called The Ordinary Streets Film. So the terms ordinary and everyday, can you describe what you mean by these terms? Mm. I mean, they're obviously very compatible terms, but in my head they have a distinction. I think in, in traditions of geography and traditions of urban sociology, the everyday has had a very strong language. And it's come um, from Henri Lefebvre um, as, a, as a way of recognizing the practices that people undertake in making the city for themselves on a day-to-day -day basis. But it also comes from writers like de Certeau, mm -hmm. who say that we need a different way of viewing and comprehending the city that's not about a distanced reflection or a quantitative overview of what's going on. So all of that and the kind of the practice that is so integral to the term every day was very important to us. But increasingly in geography, the terminology of the ordinary has come to the fore. I think the biggest proponent of this has been uh, Jenny Robinson in her wonderful book, Ordinary Cities. And there there's a stance to say, well, we do live in a, in a, in a time and place where there is a kind of order to global capitalism, which means that we get a very hierarchical um, understanding of cities, their, their, their order, their hierarchy, what counts, where people invest. And the ordinary is there to really subvert that and to say, well, there's a range of cities that are absolutely essential to our understanding of the urban. I um, move down a scale from, from Jenny's sort of planetary perspective in the sense that, for me, um, the ordinary is the space outside of designated formal authority. So it's not about the explicit space of governments. And I am really partial to the beautiful book by Asaph Bayat called Life as Politics, where he talks about the quiet encroachment of the ordinary and the ways in which um, people in their in their everyday practices but also in their ordinary spaces and in their ordinary capacity as citizens began to constitute a politics in the Middle East. Um, also really crucial for me here are some of the really fabulous post-colonial thinkers like Abdul Malik Simone who speaks very much um, about this notion of people as infrastructure. And so the ordinary for me is both the ordinary citizen, the space outside of governance, um, but also the kind of ordinary politics that is possible when you're patching together pieces of your life, when you're working against racism or abject 
inequality, the kind of uh, world politics making um, that emerges that is fundamentally ordinary. So also I think the important thing to add there is it's, it's in no way a pejorative term. Um, but not that we're looking to celebrate it, but that we're looking to understand the very uh, ways in which people make life out of very different, difficult circumstances. So these ordinary everyday spaces, how do they change and adapt culturally, socially, economically to processes of migration? And is that what you were interested in when you developed the project? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I often get students saying, um, well, why? why are you so interested in the street? And I am interested in the street because essentially I'm interested in migration. And I'm interested in migrants as city makers, as people who absolutely constitute um, and develop and refine the city. The street is such a great starting point because so much of British life and settlement is oriented around the high street. So um, UCL did a terrific study on high streets in London a couple of years ago. And they said, well, two-thirds of all Londoners live within a five-minute walk of the high street. And I think that that's true if we go to Birmingham or Leicester or Manchester or Bristol. So the high street is, in a way, a common platform that people have a deep knowledge of because they're going there on a regular basis to buy a bag of rice, to top up a phone card, to take out a book from the library. Um, and so it's a platform for me to talk about complex processes and particularly processes which have been rendered um, in terms of current politics as extraordinary. So suddenly migration is labelled as a crisis. Uh, we see images of kind of disaster and conflict at the border point. Um, we see a whole wave of politics across the UK and Europe actively voting against the mobility of people. And if the street shows us anything, it's that migration has always been, will always be. There are very long histories of migration um, of people to the UK. And when I look at a street like, for instance, the Woolworth Road or, or Rye Lane in Peckham, it becomes very evident that in the 1800s, the people who were making those streets were migrants First of all, rural to urban migrants in the UK, there were people from Ireland, Italy, Cyprus, Eastern Europe. Um, and so it, it gives us a sense, a very explicit, spatial and ordinary sense, that migration is an enduring and ongoing phenomena. It's also a process that makes rather than takes. It's, it's actively contributing to and shaping our landscapes in really, for me, very important and exciting ways. So how do spaces, ordinary streets, encourage participation in terms of migration processes and um, urban migration? Mm. Um, and what sorts of participation happens in these spaces? I think you've described mm. the activity of them. I'm so pleased you asked that question because um, a couple of months ago the Casey Review was released and to my mind it's an incredibly narrow understanding of what constitutes participation. I think that if we had to look at the world of work as being absolutely elemental to how adults in their everyday lives make, shape and participate in the societies in which they live, 
then we would get a much richer sense of participation. People um, who, who are setting up shops, uh, whether it's a shop on Rye Lane or a shop in Birmingham or a shop in Manchester, um, are doing it with a certain kind of agility that has the capacity to read the landscape around them, translate what's required, and then begin to sell goods. Now, what we learn from a whole lot of economic geographers there's a fantastic tradition here, and it's, it's mostly the feminist economic geographers, is that the economic is fundamentally social. And so in selling and buying goods, actually what you begin to do is develop conversations with people, you begin to think about different forms of trade, uh, you begin to think about different forms of care. And I'll give you a few examples of that. Um, when we did our, uh, our work um, across cities um, to the Midlands and the North, we saw a whole economy on the street which was essentially about trading favours. So, for example, in Leicester, uh, there was a relationship with the bookseller and uh, the hairdresser. And the bookseller would fill in forms because they were very good at bureaucratic speak, um, and the hairdresser would cut their hair. And in fact, if you go into restaurants uh, on, on the street that we looked at in Bristol, there's little signs in the window that say, um, we fill in forms for you and we're willing to negotiate what the basis of the deal is. Um, we also learn that there are other kinds of care and counsel that are, are traded, if you like, on the street. So adjacent to our little street in Birmingham that we looked at is a big a religious institution that has a membership of 20,000 people and it's um, essentially organized around a, a Sikh community that for the most part um, was very used to providing food to the community but when the 2008 crisis hit the need for adults in the area to be fed absolutely became paramount and so that little religious space, well, or significant religious space, now provides meals uh, to 2,000 people every week. Similarly, the street that we were working on in Bristol, one day we were doing our research and literally hundreds of adults were queuing on the pavement to be fed. And they were queuing to be fed because of the effects of austerity governance and the receding state. So people were incredibly vulnerable and fragile and again, another kind of religious institution was providing large quantities of hot food for people on the street. So the economic is social and the social is economic. Um, there are profits to be made and I'm sure there are all sorts of legitimate and illegitimate forms of profit making that go on. But there are also quite exemplary modes of care and counsel that are absolutely integral to the life of these streets. And how do you feel that city makers and policy makers can take into account these everyday interactions and experiences to improve people's experience of place? And I these mean, urban again, it's a great question and I'm, and I'm not, for me, the personally, the jury is out on this. I haven't had the easiest interaction with city makers and policy makers. Um, and I think that that's probably twofold. I think on the one hand there's a very conventional understanding 
um, in, the, in the discipline of planning as to what constitutes a so-called proper city and what constitutes proper investment. And nine times out of ten that looks like a shopping centre or it looks like a theme park or it's the next IT hub. And because um, these very ordinary streets are occupied by people across the planet, they have a different aesthetic logic, they're very often dismissed as incidental. Um, it was only when we did large-scale comparative work across now five cities where we were able to show in no uncertain terms that these streets are not incidental. They're a major providers of jobs um, in areas where there are very few jobs to be had. Um, and so slowly we are beginning to have the ear of policymakers. Um, the, the difficulty is we need to then find a different vocabulary of economic value. So it's possibly not the vocabulary of turnover, it's, it's to do with other things. And I guess we have to work more carefully with planners and policymakers to think that one through. And fortunately we've also been appointed by various local authorities. We currently um, have a contract with the GLA to begin to think about what is the social value of high streets. Um, but as one really astute planner said to me a couple of years ago when we had one of our meetings with Southern Council, he said, um, he said, Susie, you're describing a city that invents itself every 24 hours, it's fast, it's highly adaptive, and I'm working within a profession that renews itself every 10 years. Um, and so how is it that we get these different temporalities to have a conversation? What is the thing that mediates? So it wasn't simply that there was lack of will, but there is the lack in a way of professional practice in order to understand these street values um, and to translate them. The understanding, I think, I think could be done through simplified methodologies. So through our process of ethnography, we've adapted a very short survey. It has to be a face-to-face -face survey. That, you know, within a couple of days, most local authorities could pretty much get a good understanding of, of the constitutive economy of their street. And if they were willing to do that, they would get to that very quickly. Um, we are also in a logic, um, a planning logic and a contractual logic where very often we hire experts to go in and do very expensive surveys um, on, on streets like this. They're often done not in face-to-face -face ways. Um, and so we get outsiders to come in and look at something and they often misunderstand it or they use very conventional vocabulary in order to interpret it. So it is, it's a cultural challenge, it's a political challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to say that one of our streets, our streets in Leicester that we looked at, employs 800 people. Um, if you look at Rye Lane, it provides more jobs in its town centre composition than Westfield Stratford. And yet Westfield Stratford is the composition that has the ear of the politicians. And so there is a value system that, that has to shift. Do you have any suggestions for websites or channels that students and teachers can find out more about this project and its ongoingness? Probably the easiest entry point is to Google our Ordinary Streets film. It's 10 minutes. Maybe you can just watch a little bit and see if it takes your fancy. Um, we have very good interactive websites with a lot of images and PowerPoints available. 
The first is the Ordinary Streets website, which was very much the project um, oriented around Rye Lane in Peckham, South London. But the Super Diverse Streets website, I think, is maybe more relevant for a, a wider perspective of different streets that are emerging um, in the Midlands and the north of the UK. Um, and I think on both of those sites there are links to good publications. If you wanted to go further afield, uh, there's very good work that's been done by Sharon Zukin. Um, so she's done a comparative uh, global project on this. I can't remember the exact title of that, but uh, if, you, if you have a look at Sharon Zukin's work. And of course I would encourage people always to go back to some of the classics. I would download Abdus Malik Simone's wonderful essay on people as, as infrastructure. I'd have a look at Asif Bayad's book, Life as Politics, and of course I'd go back to Jenny Robinson's wonderful publication on ordinary cities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For access to further resources, publications and curriculum relevant material to support geographical learning and teaching, please go to www.rgs.org forward slash resources.